Following Jesus isn't always easy, but it's not complicated. And here on the Rusty George Podcast, we want to just make following Jesus simple, something we can understand, something we can work through and do together. Today on the podcast, we have a return guest, a friend of mine from back in my college days who was a professor of mine and is now a pastor at a uh, huge church in Phoenix, Arizona as one of their teaching pastors. Mark Moore joins us today to talk about Jesus, to talk about the Gospels, to talk about prayer, and to talk about a great resource for the new year for you called Core 52. It's a book that is a workbook you work through during the year. You can do it on your own. You can do it in groups. And I would encourage everybody to check it out. And he's going to give us some great insight into how we live this out in the coming year. So enjoy the conversation with Mark Moore. And we'll be back next week with brand new content as we continue the new year. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us again. This is, I think, your second time on the podcast, and it's an honor to have you. Um, And I just really value your friendship and input and uh, all the ways that you help the church. So tell us what you've been up to over the past few months. Uh, Well, (laughs) thanks for asking. It's a delight to be on the show again. I just got back from one of the coolest mission trips I've ever been on. We, We got a guy in our church that is a financial planner, has done really well, young guy in mean, mid-30s. And he he came to the conclusion that a tithe was not adequate for expressing his gratitude for God's blessings, hmm. you know, if you can believe that. <laughs> so he still ties to the church, but he started an organization by asking three questions. Where are the poorest people in the world? What do they need the most? And of those, who has the least access to Jesus? So he wound up digging water wells in Nepal, hmm. and we it's actually very inexpensive in Nepal to dig water wells. In the lower lands, uh, they do it by hand with some uh, tubing, and it's like a, you know $1,500, maybe $2,000 for a well that gives life to an entire village. Wow. So when you give life to a village, you also tend to plant a church, and if you plant a church, then you need to train a pastor. So we got a group of 13 men all kind of adventurous in their spirit. All of them have some some expendable resources. So all of the men paid to dig a well. Then they paid to bring pastors to a conference center. There was 170 pastors there. Almost all of them persecuted for preaching the gospel. Hmm. And we got to train them for three days. Then we got to go see one of the wells that had been dug. And then we went trekking in the Himalayas for three days. And it just, man, what God did through that for our guys, for Nepal, for the gospel, it was just extraordinary. Plus, anytime you're with a bunch of guys in backpacks, some good things tend to happen. <laughs> you, seem, you seem to be doing more of that. Every time I talk to you, you're, you're just coming off some kind of backpacking expedition. <laughs> yeah. Well, we also do a, a, a trip for Israel where it's uh, it's only, no check luggage, backpacks, and we hike 110 miles in 10 days. And that's, mm. yeah, there's a, there's a couple of those trips. A part of it, Rusty, is I think so much of our discipleship uh, is designed, and this is, this is not a criticism, but it's designed for the way women communicate. Mm-hmm. The women tend to like the face-to-face conversation. Guys, we don't. We, we would rather be hip-to-hip. Mm-hmm. So the conversation takes longer. 
uh, it's 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 rougher or more raw. But over over the days, you just see some guys being really honest about where they are spiritually. And the reason it works is not because I'm leading it. Hmm. In fact, the secret is I'm just a catalyst. Mm -hmm. When you get great dudes together, I mean, we had a couple of F-35 pilots on the trip and, and they were they were normal in that group. And it just seeing the the leadership of men massaging the well that's the wrong word with men that men uh just sharpening one another like iron sharpens iron it's ex- i mean you've you've done similar kind of things it's extraordinary there is such a big difference and and obviously i, I remember the class i took with you in college was christian education yeah uh and, and to think about uh and the class was great but to think about how far we've come in understanding that it used to just be a classroom and now we're understanding we just learn different ways, and certainly men versus women. Um, it really is over a long period of time, hip to hip. I, I, I totally see that. Guys very rarely talk face to face, but more of in a car or on a trip or, you know, on a basketball court. Yeah. And so part, of the, part of the thing I, I love about real life, as well as Christ Church of the Valley, where I serve, is we're not interested in making people smarter. Right. We're interested in, in, in fact, I don't wouldn't even use the term Christian education anymore. I would use the term uh, coaching, mm-hmm. where we help people take their next steps in Christ. And if that's only knowledge, I mean, I think part of the reason that the church has stalled in certain areas is because we've we've given people more and more knowledge, thinking that action and transformation is a result of knowledge and it's not mm-hmm. it's 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 a result of life on life challenge and knowledge becomes a tool for taking your next step it is not your next step mm-hmm. so true oh so true yeah and I, I think the sad thing that you and i have seen over the years is sometimes the most educated are the ones that they just you know burn out they uh they they have morality failures um, there's all kinds of issues because it's, it hasn't reached the heart. It's just a head-based game. Yeah, there's actually a, a, a science behind that, Rusty, that I've been investigating. And I may have shared it with you last time we talked, but the way we measure our spirituality will determine the, the emphasis that our service shows up in. So in churches that primarily measure their spirituality through biblical knowledge mm-hmm. and through personal morality, which you and I both grew up in, in that kind of background of a church, uh, if, you, if you know enough scriptures and if you, if you abstain from enough substances, that's what makes you spiritual. Mm-hmm. Where I, I think all of us would realize, no, it's loving your neighbor and, and you can totally not love your neighbor but have great Bible knowledge and abstain from evil. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, some of the some of the discipleship mechanisms actually pull people away from engaging their neighbors, mm. not into the community. And so, I mean, I think there's. Um, if I could just get off on a tangent here for a minute, there was a. Uh, and this is not a new idea with me, but uh, when Jesus touched the leper. The leper runs up to him, which was actually illegal. He's supposed to keep his distance. Runs up and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him, even though he had healed from a distance of 20 miles. So there was no reason he had to touch him, but he deliberately touched him. 
And everyone in the audience gasped because they were certain that the leprosy would infect Jesus. Because up to that moment in history, and this is actually a big deal, whether you're a Christian or not, this is a, this is a big, it's a big moment in religious history. Every religious system had assumed that uncleanness was more contagious than cleanness. And to this day, that's 99.9% of all religious people still believe that uncleanness is more contagious than cleanness. But Jesus turned that on his head. He said, no, it is the cleanness that will overwhelm the uncleanness, the light that will overcome the dark. So I've come to believe, Rusty, that if, if you're a true Christian, that you will always be centrifugal in your expression of your faith. Whereas religion in general tends to be uh, pretty introverted, not extroverted. Wow. That's a lot to process right there. That is so good. Yeah, because I, I, I've heard that story obviously a hundred times and preached it probably a dozen. And the idea of him, t- of him touching this, this leper is such a generous thing. But that the religious system behind that, between the uncleanness versus cleanness, which, which carries more weight, boy, that's, that's powerful. Um, and so, yeah, imagine imagine if the church got a hold of that idea. What would we do with HIV/AIDS? Mm-hmm. What would we do with immigrants? What would we do with, with uh, female literacy? What would we do with human trafficking? Most of our efforts in the community are actually um, creating a spiritual welfare system where we have what you know, we, we we have the answers, and you need to come to us, and we'll help you. Mm-hmm. That's I think that, I think that's wrongheaded. Mm-hmm. Okay, so with that in mind, and this is what I wanted to talk to you about, because this is our first podcast of the year, and everybody's still a bit in the mode of New Year's resolutions, (laughs) and we may have gotten rid of a few of them by now, but I think for a lot of us, especially those of us who are interested in developing our spiritual life and growing in Christ, becoming more like Jesus, we start every year with, all right, what's one or two things I need to do this year to make me more like Jesus? And to your point, it's not just about knowledge, but knowledge is important. And you did write this incredible resource called Core 52, which is designed to help people in their biblical knowledge. Would you help us understand, first of all, the value of it and how to practice that? Just give us a uh, a tutorial on Core 52. Yeah, well, let me let me actually get open up the curtain behind behind the work. Core fifty two is a book that takes you through the fifty two most important verses of the Bible, uh, and, and what I mean by that is over decades of preaching, I've noticed in in my preaching and hundreds of others that when these verses are preached, more life change takes place. And so rather than saying to someone, hey, you need to know the Bible, I'm going to give you a place to start and reduce this huge volume of material down to some bite-sized chunks. Uh, And I've thought about Rusty as like when you go to Disneyland Hmm. and you get a fast pass, you just walk ahead of the line in front of everybody else. And that's what I want Core 52 to do for your Bible literacy. Now, with the caveat we've just mentioned that it's not about knowledge, but I'll circle back around to that. Knowing the Bible or reading the Bible is actually, and this is not a debate, it's it's actually scientifically demonstrated, Bible engagement defined by a person reading the Bible four times a week or more. So it can't just be in church. 
Bible engagement is the single most effective spiritual discipline for going further, faster in your faith. Hmm. It's more important than prayer, than fasting, than church attendance, than small groups. When people engage the Bible four times a week or more, the stats of their life are staggeringly different. Drunkenness drops by 60%. Sexual immorality drops by 60%. Gambling drops by 54%. list could go on. Your self-esteem raises by 30%. Hmm. Your sense of isolation lowers by 30%. Your self-destructive thoughts lower by 30%. So, so much good comes out of this. And, and, and Rusty, so this is just you and me talking. If the audience wants to eavesdrop, they're welcome. But I have made a mistake for decades in ministry. I have tried to convince people that they should want to read the Bible. Well, the problem with that is, they already do. They just don't know how in a productive way. Hmm. So I've been telling people like almost guilt manipulating. You should read the Bible. You should read the Bible. And they go, I, I know, but show me how. Mm-hmm. When we just say, we'll start in Genesis. <laughs> it never works because it's too big a book and people get lost along the way. Mm-hmm. So Core 52 is kind of meeting people where they are, giving them a system that What's, you know, we're, a, we're in the new year, so people are thinking about workouts. How do you get into a workout system? If you tell people to do, you know, the, the 12th week of CrossFit in January 1, you will kill them. Mm-hmm. So what, <laughs> what we've done is just given them bite-sized chunks. It's a, it, it is an exercise program that will take you five days a week, 15 minutes a day for one year. So let me circle back around to what we talked about earlier. It's not just about head knowledge. Day one is reading the essay in Core 52. It's six pages. You can do that in 10, 15 minutes. Day two, I'm asking you to memorize a verse. And people say, well, I can't memorize. Actually, you can. And I'm going to prove it to you. Core52.org has... Uh, 52 videos where I just memorize the verse with you. It takes about three, four minutes. And I'll, I'll give you some coaching tips along the way, but everyone who who memorizes scriptures has this spurt of growth in their spiritual life. So I don't want to seem, make it seem overwhelming, but just I'm just going to ask you, try it for three weeks. See if it works for you. The third day is to read another passage out of the Bible, a story. So that you take the principle of the verse and expand it to someone's life. Day four is there's three verses. I just want you to meditate on these. Hmm. Quiet your soul and see how this principle in the core verse is the trajectory through multiple other verses. Day five, you're going to, I'm going to give you one suggestion of one way to express this spiritual truth in an exercise that will take you about 30 minutes and will give you a, a sense of how this verse can impact your life in a practical way. So that's, that's kind of the whole year in 90 seconds. What are you noticing from people that have completed Core 52 or are halfway through it? Are there any kind of trends you see when people begin to maybe get tired or they fade out, or maybe they pick up a second wind. Well, we all get tired, and there's all waves. But the advantage of Core 52 is every single verse 
is potentially life-changing. Now, some will be more life-changing for you than others, but we're talking about 52 mountain peaks of the Bible. So when someone uh, does have a sickness or they do go on vacation, or maybe they're having a, a moral crisis, when they re- it's easy to re-engage because you're re-engaging at a, a verse that has a high ROI. So for example, uh, our, pa- our senior pastor's wife told me, I just read chapter nine. I, I forgot what chapter nine was. It's on happiness. Who doesn't want happiness? Hmm. Or w- one that I just uh, looked at again this morning is on grace. How, how do I receive the grace? Who doesn't need grace? How to pray, how to read the Bible profitably, how to, how to mentor or be mentored. What, what, what is my purpose in life? That's the second uh, essay. Because each one is so practical and so important to where you live and I live, it's really, the, will, we, will we get lost along the way? Yeah. But it's really easy to re-engage because there's a low barrier of entry and a high ROI when you do. Okay, so just for anybody listening right now thinking, all right, I'm in. How do they pick this up? Yeah, probably the easiest way is to go to core52.org. There's a purchase button that will allow you to see who's selling it uh, at the least expensive uh, price at that time. Or if there's a group that wants to do it together, uh, you can you can hit the bulk buy button. And we just, again, I'm not making any more money from, from that. It's just... I want to help people know where the least expensive purchase point is. Hmm. But everything you need to know is on core52.org, whether you want to buy the book or engage with the teaching videos, engage with the memorization videos. There's some questions if you're doing this with someone else that will just help you week by week stay on point with the discussion. That's great. Okay, well, I want to encourage all our listeners to pick that up and gather in groups and make this a part of your 2020. Mark, I want to shift our conversation a bit and talk a lot about uh, prayer. And specifically, I've become fascinated with the responses that Jesus gives people when they ask for something, a miracle, an answer, uh, uh, an opportunity, and he seems to have different responses to almost everybody, which really messes up with our uh, our modern world where we like to systematize everything. Yeah. Uh, but he he really has a different agenda. And I, I got to thinking, uh, I don't know, several months ago about you know this whole idea of many of us pray. And I know you've had this experience before where you're talking with somebody in the lobby. And you know they're telling you their problem or their issue that's coming up or what they're facing. And you say, well, let's pray about it. And, and they say, well, I have been praying about it. And they want to know why God hasn't answered, why he hasn't fixed things, even if it's a no, uh, why, why they haven't heard anything. And I wondered, is there anything we can glean from the way that Jesus answers requests um, that helps us understand the way that he continues to answer our requests today? Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really that's really a, a rich uh, question, Rusty, and probably a, a lot of, of ways that we could explore that. Let me share one that comes to my mind, because what I think when people get a weight, they're okay. But my friend John Lees, he is um, just retired as a physician. He is 
gosh, he's had hundreds of people in our church that he's helped as a medical doctor. But the one he couldn't help was his own son. Mm. He had a an addiction to alcohol and drugs that led to, I mean, so much um, m- trauma to his brain that he started having seizures after he got clean. And the seizures caused him to fall, and he hit his head in such a way that it shut down a particular part of his brain that shut down his organs. And within three days, at 28 years old, he died. Hmm. While he was in in this waiting period, uh, John and I talked, and he said, I'm praying for a miracle. I expect a miracle. And I don't know whether the miracle is going to be for me or the people who will receive my son's organs, but I know there's going to be a miracle. Hmm. And it was, it was amazing to me to, to go to the funeral and watch John stand up and just share his testimony of faith with, I would say half the audience uh, was there because John was their doctor, not because they shared his faith. And for him to give that testimony was really, it was overwhelming. But John had gotten to a place where he knew God was good And so even though the situation was terrible, it didn't shake his faith. But not everyone is is where John is. And so when I talk to people, a wait is okay. I can wait. A yes is great. I get a yes and that's great. But what what about when God tells you no? And so we could explore some other avenues uh, about this, Rusty. But one of the things that I've thought deeply about is who did God say no to? Well, he said no to Moses. Mm-hmm. I want to go in the promised land. Nope, you can't. He said no to David. I, I, I want to build a temple for you guys. Nope, you can't. He said no to Paul. Take this cup or take this thorn in the flesh away from me. And he said no to Jesus. Take this cup away from me. Everyone that God said no to was a spiritual giant. And sometimes when God says no, It's because he already has you exactly where he wants you. And you don't want a yes, even though you want released from the cup or the thorn. And that seems to have helped people really think through the purpose of God is not my comfort or even my success. The purpose of God is that I would glorify him. And we all know, we don't like it, but we know that the greatest attention that God gets is not through our success, Hmm. but our successful suffering when we don't lose faith. When we become a John Lees, that's where God is mostly glorified. And that's not what people want to hear. (laughs) Well, that's what they need to hear. Well, that's powerful. And you're right. I mean, it is in our suffering where other people see our testimony, but we learn so much about God as well, as as C.S. Lewis used to say. Tell me about some of these encounters that Jesus had with people, very unique next steps he gives to them. The Syrophoenician woman he challenges. Um, the lepers he says, yeah, go show yourself to the priest and your healing happens on the way. Uh, what, do you, what do you make of all that? What stands out to you in some of these, these many instances? Yeah, or with the, with the centurion in, in Capernaum who helped build the synagogue and Jesus was going to go to his home. And that guy said, no, you know, don't, don't, don't violate this, this racial barrier. It won't, won't be good for you. 
Rusty, obviously Jesus, uh, he's above my pay grade to really explain him. <laughs> but one of the things that that really helped me think through how he treated, well, everyone who is sick for specifically. In the Western world, we talk about healing, but we really don't do healing. Our medical system is all geared towards curing. In other words, we're healing is when you remove the barrier caused by an illness, a barrier between a husband and wife or uh, a woman and her kids or some kind of community. Jesus didn't just cure people. In fact, he didn't, there are a lot of people he didn't cure. He didn't care about cures because cures are temporary. And if you cure one physical ailment, you likely have three or four others. So when he healed the woman with the issue of blood, he cured one problem she had, but if you know anything about that ancient world, she also had dental work that needed that he she needed help with, probably a vitamin D uh, deficiency. I mean, there were a lot of things Jesus Jesus didn't put people in perfect health. What he did was remove the barrier, the physical barrier that isolated them, separated them from people who were important to them. Hmm. So the woman with the issue of blood uh, was not allowed to have sex with her husband or he would be unclean. Now, they probably violated that. After all, it was a 12-year period. Or the leper, they were not allowed to uh, visit their own family in their own homes. Uh, a woman with blood wouldn't be able to hold her children on her lap without violating purity laws. The, the sicknesses that people experienced were separating them from communities. So even though Jesus' response to people, his, his what you do next, your next step, was different for each individual, what is the same is that every next step brought that sick person back together with a community that was important to them. Therein lies the healing. You can't have healing without reconciliation. Hmm. And so when lepers come and say, we want to be clean, Jesus cleansed them and then said, go to the priest. Why? Because just Jesus curing their leprosy would not heal their social stigma. They had to have an authorized priest remove the barrier so they could go back home and go back to the synagogue. Hmm. So I'm I'm listening to this and I'm thinking about all the miracles Jesus did. And I know this is this is elementary, but I mean everything he did was to restore community with people or with his father. Am I reading that right? Well, yeah, and I so I I'll tell you an interesting story. Uh when my daughter was probably 5 years old, this is going way back. You remember the old video stores where you you would go and rent a <laughs> You probably remember DVDs. I'm old enough. I actually remember uh, VCR videos. I used to work so in one of those stores, Mark. I, I, you did not. I rented out VHS and Betamax, if you can remember that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, I think we both just dated ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we might want to edit this podcast. That's right. My, my five-year-old daughter, you, you know, we're looking for a movie. My wife wants something that she could cry to, which I've never understood women paying good money to cry. But there you have it. (laughs) I want to see something blown up. And so we're trying to find something that we can both watch. My daughter gets lost in the store. When we go to find her, she's walking down the aisle. Every 
VCR cover that has a scantily clad woman. She's just turning it around, <laughs> like doing maintenance for, for the whole store. And so it, it struck me in that moment, that's what Jesus was doing with the miracle. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus is going to die again. Right. When he healed the blind man, he's going to have some other toothache or bellyache or skin disease. But what Jesus was doing was just for a moment trying to make it right hmm. in order to point forward. So let me get back to the woman who had an issue of blood. She had, she had a gynecological problem for 12 years. She was healed in tandem with a 12-year-old girl who just died. Why in the world would you record a healing of a gynecological problem? It seems unsavory. Well, the point was you have a woman who had a problem of death, or a girl who had a problem with death, a woman who had a problem of blood, and Jesus flipped the VCR cassette tape around for just a moment. Because the next time we see blood and death together, hmm. it will be a permanent solution to both their problems. <laughs> and so every miracle of Jesus that I see really is pointing to the cross. Hmm. And that's not to say that Jesus, and I get this with a lot of evangelicals, that you know, it's, it's all about going to heaven someday. No, our faith is about bringing heaven to earth today. Mm-hmm. But we have to understand, I, I was with the neighborhood clinic here in Phoenix. They serve 10,000 patients a year, and you can't be served there if you have insurance. So these are for, for no, non-insured people. It costs $30 to deal with them. To, to eat. That includes your medicine, your care, your, your x-rays. But every person who goes to the neighborhood clinic These physicians share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them because they know I can cure your ailment, but healing only comes through Jesus. Hmm. You wrote a set of commentaries years ago on the gospels. In my opinion, they're the best thing I've ever seen. It's what I start with, what I finish with, and I don't know why I read anything else, but I do because I feel like I'm supposed to. Thank you, Russ. Uh, but it's it's such a great insight into Jesus, and you taught you taught the Life of Christ class for so many years. I think you have thought more about how Jesus lived his life than most of us ever have or may ever will. Would you help us understand the perspective that each gospel writer brings to their telling of Jesus and his story. And so when we're going through Core 52 or we're reading the scriptures or we're just reading through the gospels, we kind of know, oh, this is the angle Matthew's coming at it or Luke or Mark or John, uh, just to give us a little bit of flavor into it. Because that's what I love about uh, your teaching and your writings is you kind of give us a little bit more than just the facts. You give us the the, the flavor of what's going on uh, and you can almost sense what's happening on those on those, uh, those streets. So give us some perspective. Yeah. So, so actually, uh, I'm going to email you a one page comparison of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Okay. And, and maybe you could post that with this, uh, with this podcast, but, uh, yeah, let me w- walk through them. Matthew probably wasn't the first to write, 
but uh, Mark was likely the first to write. But Matthew, I think, is put up front because he connects so well with the Old Testament, beginning with a, a genealogy, you know. Matthew is an ex-tax collector, but his focus, and this, I, I love this idea that you've got a guy that was not allowed in the synagogue, but late at night when no one was looking, he was reading the sacred text. <laughs> and, and I think we underestimate how many people that we would call pagans or non-believers or pre-Christians, whatever word you want to use, we think they're disinterested in Jesus. They're absolutely not. They're maybe disinterested in the church and probably disinterested in you as a Christian, but they're fascinated with the promises of God. And they they have this a, a need for God to engage with them. So when Matthew was invited into the inner circle, man, nobody expected that, not least of which is Matthew. And so Matthew becomes, and I, I, I need to be careful because I don't want to spend you know, an hour on this, but you could, Matthew becomes the gospel writer who quotes most scripture, who uses more allusions to the Old Testament. I mean, here's just one example. When Jesus is baptized and goes into the wilderness, uh, he is in the wilderness for 40 days. And Matthew paints that like Moses passing through the Red Sea, that's baptism, and going into the wilderness for 40 years. Here's what Matthew knew that many of us don't think about. You said, well, Jesus was only there 40 days, that Israel was there 40 years. That's really different. It's not the same thing. No, actually, Israel should have been in the wilderness for 40 days. Hmm. They wound up in the wilderness 40 years because when they got to the promised land, they sent in spies and they listened to those who had lacked faith instead of the two uh, Caleb and Joshua said, no, we, we, we can do this. The 40 years was plan B. 40 days was plan A. And so Matthew is showing us how Jesus fulfills plan A of all the Old Testament, even down to five major sermons in Matthew that match the five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Jews call that the Torah. So, so that's Matthew. He is he is this guy who is deeply connected with Scripture. He is a, 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 a for lack of a better term, he's the Jew that doesn't make the Jews proud <laughs> until he comes to Jesus and really finds his faith and finds his identity in Christ. Now, Mark, uh, obviously, I've got to give you know, credence to Mark. He's a young guy. I have a lot in common with Mark. <laughs> because he screwed up multiple times, but he just kept at it. So in the garden, he is the only one that tells a story of a young man in the garden who tried to rescue Jesus, got caught. The guards grabbed his tunic and he ran away naked. I mean, talk about getting caught with your toga up or your pants down or whatever culture you're from. Mark is a guy who followed Paul in his first missionary journey, but flaked out halfway through. But by the end of his life, Mark was called son by both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. And that gives me, honestly, Rusty, I, I'm i getting a little emotional. Hmm. I've made so many mistakes in my life in ministry. I'm just stubborn enough to not quit. Because like Mark, where else am I going to go? What, what, what else am I going to do but preach the gospel? 
And so what Mark does is follows Peter clear to Rome and starts writing down while Peter is preaching. And that's how we got the gospel. So it is a gospel that tells the story of the Jewish Jesus to a Roman audience. Hmm. And a lot of the the brevity of the narrative, for example, it, it is the shortest of all the gospels. It's It has the word immediately in it more than any other gospel. So he's like always in a hurry. <laughs> it's totally American, totally Roman. I love that about Mark. Luke, on the other hand, Luke is Luke is incredibly unique. He is the only non-Jewish writer of the entire Bible. But do you realize we read more words from Luke than we do from Paul? Hmm. We, there's more words from Luke than we have from John or Matthew or any other New Testament author. 27% of the New Testament is written by this non-Jewish person. And the real value of Luke is he doesn't just tell us the story of the Gospels. He is the only one to record the history of the church from 30 to 60 AD. And he does it. And if you you watch him carefully, he is always pointing forward to outsiders. So if you're listening today and you're an intellectual, you will love Luke. His Greek is unbelievably difficult because he's sophisticated. If you're a physician, you should love Luke because he was a physician. If you're a historian, you should love Luke because he was a historian. If you're an outsider that want to be an insider, you should love Luke because he was an outsider want to be an insider. What impresses me, though, Rusty, about Luke the most, and again, this is kind of personal to me, because of my educational trajectory, I've been around a lot of really smart people. Like, I I can pretend like I'm one of them. I'm really not. I know what smart is. Luke is smart. And a lot of the smartest people I know are very arrogant, and they, they lack connection and compassion with the least and the lost. But Luke tells us more about women, children, Gentiles, sinners, and outsiders than anyone else. Hmm. He, he is a person that his theology was, he, he used all the gifts that God had given him to impact the people who lacked the resources to protect themselves. Now, John is the last one, literally the last one to write, probably in the early to mid-90s. Every other apostle was dead. So John begins to write to record what the others didn't. And without getting into the weeds, I am positive that John had a copy of the other Gospels in front of them as he wrote, because every time that John uh, leaves a big piece out, like he doesn't— he, he gives five chapters to the upper room, hmm. but never tells us about the Lord's Supper. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> because he had given the earlier version of the, the genesis of the Lord's Supper after the feeding of the 5,000 two and a half years earlier. He does that with baptism, with the Holy Spirit, with the Lord's Supper. John is a genius philosophically, but his language is at a 12-year-old, 6th-grade level, he uses the most elementary Greek. So uh, I know you studied Greek. First book you, you read from was John mm-hmm. because it was the easiest. So part of what I, what I really love about John is that he, he takes the, the most 
difficult concepts and he makes them simple to understand. But you got to be careful with John because the simplest words will have the deepest meaning. Mm. So take, for example, the word water. In chapter one, water is about John's baptism. In chapter two, Jesus turns water to wine. In chapter three, there's living water being born of the water and the spirit. Chapter four, a woman at the well is drawing water. Chapter five, there's a lame man at a at a portico of of water that bubbles up. Chapter six, Jesus walks on water, and you know, on it goes. Water, even the simplest words, you can't you can't blow by them quickly. You have to read John with the concordance in one hand. And in uh, and, and your Bible in the other hand. One more thing I'll say about John, and we can go to another question. John's nickname was the disciple whom Jesus loved. That was his new nickname. His old nickname with his brother James was Boanerges, meaning the son of thunder. These guys were so outrageous. They wanted to call, they wanted to call down fire from heaven and burn up the Samaritans who wouldn't give them housing. Now, think about this. A a couple of Jewish boys calling down a holocaust on foreigners. Hmm. It just seems inappropriate from our perspective. <laughs> but John and James were arrogant, they were hot-headed, they were selfish. But by the time John writes his book, he gives more names of apostles than any other gospel writer, but he never mentions himself. He never mentions Mary, his adopted mother, and he never mentions his brother, James. Hmm. I want to know what transformed him because I could use some personal development like that. Hmm. So there are the four gospels in a nutshell. In a nutshell. Thank you, Mark. I have one last question for you. Um, You've been following Jesus for many years, a pastor for many years, and a deep dive into the life of Jesus for the last two, three decades for sure. What do you wish you knew about Jesus 30 years ago that you know now? Oh, let me, let me answer in phases. When I, when I first, probably 10 years in, what I learned about Jesus that I wish I had known is how much he loved people. Because for me growing up, um, following Jesus was about a set of rules. Mm. And Jesus broke all the rules for people. There's only three times in the Gospels that Jesus ever got angry. Once it was with his disciples once was with the Pharisees, and once was with the Sadducees. I mean, livid, angry. Every time was because these religious people were keeping people away from Jesus who needed to have access to God. So if you ever want to make Jesus mad, do anything that will close the door of the church or your home on people that God wants access to. Hmm. The second thing that, uh, and I would say this was about 20 years in, Rusty, I discovered that the Great Commission of Jesus, which the Great Commission is repeated in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, so it's a big deal, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. The first Great Commission passage is actually in Luke 4, where Jesus in his hometown synagogue said, this is what I'm all about. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to reach the world. 
And it's not about preaching a Christian doctrine. It is about providing social justice for the poor, the imprisoned, the outsider. I really had to change my view of what a good Christian looked like. A good Christian is not a person that abstains from things, but but a person who engages other people who know most need God. And if I could, you know, if it was just you and me privately talking, I would admit how how little I've actually done to make radical changes for the poor. And I, I hope to get better at that in my old age. Here's the th- probably what I'm learning right now. And you'll have to you'll have to give me some grace here, Rusty, because I'm still in the middle of thinking through this. It's kind of the opposite of my first realization how much Jesus loves people is is the observation of <clears throat> how demanding he is. He will, he will give you his own blood, but we can't just, we can't just take and take and take without giving loyalty back to him. Hmm. And sometimes I, and I don't want anyone to feel insecure in their salvation. You're saved by grace. Don't, don't misunderstand. But Jesus demands a life that reflects the love and loyalty he's shown to us. And I don't know that I'm there yet, Rusty, because I, I still live much of my day, even, even when I prepare a sermon, like I'm, I'm preparing a sermon today. I think about, okay, how, how is this going to make me look? Or how can I, you know, how can I be effective? How can I be popular? How can I make money? And we just have to be really, really careful that Jesus doesn't become an excuse for promoting ourselves, especially in the ministry. So I'm really, honestly, I'm really wrestling with that, as you can tell by my my pauses. Hmm. That's so rich. Mark, as always, time with you is always well spent. Uh, I love our conversations, and uh, you just always encourage us and push us and challenge us uh, in all the right ways. And excited for our people to check out Core 52 and spend the next year with it and to see the impact in their lives. So blessings on you, brother. Thank you for all that you do for the kingdom and for uh, so many churches and your encouragement to me over the past few months. It's been uh, it's meant so much. So I appreciate you and thank you for being on the podcast. You bet. You are, you are a dear friend anytime.